All right, good morning to you. It's quite a privilege to be here, and um, as a layperson in particular, every time I've had an opportunity to do this, I have a renewed respect for the pastor and the role of coming here week in, week out to say, hey, this is what uh, God's Word has to say. It's kind of a, a daunting challenge, so offer up a prayer for me, if you, if you will, and um, I'm really happy to, to, to give uh, Pastor Paul a, uh, a, a week off, because he definitely deserves that. Um, we're reading a fascinating passage this morning. Um, it comes from Luke chapter 4, so if you could turn to Luke 4, 16 to 22. Luke 4, 16 to 22, turn or touch or whatever it is, uh, such a, I don't know what we do these days. Um, Whatever you have, turn to Luke 4, uh, verses 16 to 22. I've entitled the the sermon, Jesus in the Isaiah Scroll. Um, So let's go ahead and read Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is light to our feet. Send your spirit to guide us as we seek to examine and understand it for your glory and the good of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, when I looked at this passage and um, thought about what to highlight and to bring out, I was struck by the richness of everything contained here. There was a lot of different ways to go. Um, we see Jesus beginning his ministry after experiencing the temptation with the devil in the wilderness. Um, Jesus is in his hometown, which is pretty interesting. There's kind of a theatrical synagogue scene Um, The reading of this great prophet, Isaiah, from this scroll, the amazing content of that portion of Isaiah, and the astounding claim that Jesus makes at the end of it that he fulfills these prophecies. Um, And then there's also the extreme responses of the people in the immediate aftermath. We read just a little bit of that, and I'll talk at the end some of the stuff below our passage that's even more extreme and how the people respond. Um, But given all of that, there are still what I thought of as huge tectonic plates kind of underneath this passage that I thought were important to bring out in addition to those things that are, that are more out, fr- out front. Um, so that's what I wanted to focus on, a little bit of the background issues, and hopefully that will make more rich what the actual passage is talking about. Um, so I'd like to talk about I, this Isaiah scroll and what it uh, teaches us about the nature of Revelation. Also, the great Trinitarian uh, work of salvation that we see here in this passage, um, the prophecy's meaning, and then the possible responses to it. So that's kind of the program for the sermon. 
First, let's look at this tectonic plate of uh, revelation that undergirds this passage and, and what's assumed about revelation uh, for the people there in this synagogue. Um, first off, um, why is it that the Jews are in the synagogue week in, week out, reading this old scroll of Isaiah? And of course, there were other scrolls as well. Um, what is the, what's the nature of Scripture that we learn from this, this passage? And then uh, also, what is Jesus' view of Revelation that we see here? So first, thinking about Jesus, uh, what he believed about Revelation, looking to some of the other passages in the Gospels, we, we get a good um, understanding of that. First, he believed uh, that Scripture was written by man, and at the same time, it was the Word of God. Um, we see that he referred to um, Old Testament texts. Uh, often, he would talk about what Moses said, or what David said, or Isaiah, or Daniel. But then, at other times, he would refer to those same writings as what God said to you. Um, for instance, with reference to the law of Moses, Jesus says in Matthew fifteen four, For God commanded... Honor your father and your mother. And we know that was written in Moses, yet it was God who gave that commandment. Um, in other places, he refers uh, to the Psalms about what David had said, quote, in the spirit. And that in the spirit had uh, a very significant meaning to it about the, the nature of, of that. It wasn't just some, uh, you know, the, the random musings of King David. Um, so the way that Jesus often refers to scriptures, it shows that he understood them to be a unified whole from God and authoritative. Um, farther down in Luke, also in chapter 16, um, he argues that heaven and earth would pass away before one dot or iota would be made void. One dot or iota, the smallest aspect of that written language would not pass away um, before uh, heaven and earth. Um, in John 10.35, he said that Scripture cannot be broken. And so this is the view of Jesus um, as he read aloud this, this scroll of Isaiah. Now, um, beyond this, um, which would have been a pretty standard Jewish view um, in the day of Jesus, what can we learn about Revelation from our particular passage here? Let's look at that. Um, Jesus, it says, finds the place where it was written. He goes to a specific spot for his purposes on that day. There's a clear intentionality here in Jesus. Um, for this passage, on this day, Jesus has a powerful message. And this isn't just a message about the Isaiah passage, which is kind of like my message today. It's about that. Uh, but this is a declaration that Isaiah wrote this passage about Jesus. Um, it's obviously an astounding claim about Jesus himself, but also about the nature of revelation. You know, this might have been pretty amazing if in Jesus' own day there was a prophet that was prophesying and he was prophesying about Jesus. That would be astounding enough. But Isaiah wrote uh, and prophesied in the 700s BC. Um, so it was in a time, uh, you know, Israel was on a precipice of disaster. Um, the northern kingdom fell in 722 B.C. during Isaiah's lifetime, and he uh, prophesied about that. But he also prophesied about the coming uh, fall of Judah, which was 100 years after his time. He prophesied about the return of the, um, the exiles that were in Babylon. 
He even prophesied about Cyrus, who would be involved in, in that return. And so because of these amazing details, a lot of the critical scholars in our day, they uh, slice and dice Isaiah, and they attribute different parts of the author to, uh, to different parts to be authored by different people and at different times, because there's not really any way that someone could give that kind of detail ahead of time. But um, you don't see anything like that in the text or certainly by Jesus or the apostles that they're having that kind of critical uh, nature. So it's probably saying more about critical scholarship than it is about Isaiah or Jesus. Um, and I think it's interesting when you think of the other details that are, that are included in Isaiah against these critical scholars. Um, it, to me, it goes beyond those kinds of what was going to happen in time 100 years future, because you know, anyone could kind of divine, hey, our country could see, could see disaster in, in the future, right? But he also talked about the virgin birth, right? 700 years ahead of time. What are, what's the scholar's answer to that? Now, obviously, the scholars will always do their scholarly thing, so I'm not saying they don't have an answer. I don't think it's a good answer. Um, but virgin birth, right? 700 years ahead of time. He talked, and we'll talk a little bit in this sermon about the suffering servant, um, which is in these stark details, way ahead, centuries ahead of Christ's time, um, foretelling what would happen um, in the suffering servant and Jesus and taking on our sins. Um, no good answer for that. And, we, and, and so we see this scripture speaking ahead of time what will happen, and not just you know, telling bare events, but having a clear uh, meaning that it's communicating, really filling up the meaning of what these events um, uh, have to say. And indeed, this fourth telling of future events is really an important part of Isaiah. In uh, Isaiah 48, 3 to 5, uh, the Lord says, he specifically says that he's spoken of these things that uh, are not yet to be in order to shut the mouth of unbelievers. So it's a clear purpose of what Isaiah is doing. But looking to our passage, um, what's the basic content of this portion of Isaiah cited by Jesus? Um, This comes from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and a little bit into 2, with a snippet also of Isaiah 58, 6. And also, and this will factor into some of the rest of the the sermon, a lot of um, Bible scholars believe that Isaiah 61 is a, a kind of um, exposition of Isaiah's 40 to 55, so a much longer portion, a 15-chapter portion of Isaiah um, that's got a, it's just packed full of stuff about the kingdom of God. And so really that's what Jesus is calling up when he's um, reading from Isaiah here. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, So back at our scene, we have Jesus turning to this 700-year-old prophecy uh, about the kingdom of God and the amazing impacts that it will have. And he says that Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled this day. Isaiah did not understand the details of what he was referring to. Um, The details of history that God had to orchestrate just to get to this point in the prophecy are beyond human understanding. Beyond that, even in Jesus' day, this prophecy's fulfillment was announced. Jesus said this is fulfilled today. But the full flowering of this continues even to our day 
and beyond. Um, and this points to the infinite complexity that this prophecy entails. And one of the astounding things is it also uh, comes to each and, one, each and every one of our lives today. This prophecy that Jesus claimed is fulfilled continues to have its meaning in our own lives. And so this kind of revelation bears the obvious marks of divine glory. It's not just uh, mere, you know, something from God, but there's a gloriousness that we're to, to take away from this. So what's the, what's the so what of all of this on this for, first point about the nature of revelation? We as finite human beings stand in desperate need of transcendent truth and divine guidance. The scriptures teach, and Jesus believed in a view of the Bible as providing such revelation. In scripture, we have not only the sure word of God, which cannot be broken, but we also have a text that unfurls its profound meaning in history that can point to a person, to a day, hundreds of years in advance, and its explication of such events provide meaning and hope for ages to come. So given these facts, what kind of students of Scripture do you think we ought to be? So we must make it our life's goal to deepen our knowledge of these Scriptures, um, to order our core identity and beliefs and hopes upon them. And in short, uh, God's Word must be our rule of faith and life. So point one, in this passage, we see an overwhelmingly high view of Scripture taught. Going to background point number two here, we also see really important uh, implications about the nature of God himself. So let's talk about that. Um, Who is this God who's bringing all this about? The answer is, it's the Trinitarian God. It is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is perhaps more striking when you consider that Jesus uh, reads from the Old Testament here. Why, why do we believe in the Trinity? Is it just something we, you know, we want to do? We want to stand out from the Jews, and so we invented this? No, it's because of revelation, and primarily um, we're compelled to, to grapple with the fact of one God and the fact of three co-equal persons. But that was primarily revealed in the New Testament with the sending of the Son, with the um, uh, pouring of the Spirit after the Son's ascension. Um, and, but, but it's interesting when you think of why is it that in the Old Testament, you know, this is more saved for, for the New Testament. Maybe we could talk about that more if anyone uh, wants to follow up on that in the Q&A. But really it's with that incarnation of the Son um, that this is fully revealed in the, in the pouring out of the Spirit. But um, none of this is opposed to what's in the Old Testament, and that, that's really important. Um, and not only is it not opposed, it's really um, consistent with it. Um, there's strong hints of the Trinitarian nature of God in, in the Old Testament. B.B. Um, Warfield, um, the old uh, Princeton theologian describes this in helpful terms. He says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. 
The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation, and here and there almost comes into view. And I would say, you know, when you look at a passage like this, maybe it's even more than almost comes into view. Um, So some of those dimly lit rich furnishings in the Old Testament include a regular threefold pattern um, of God and his acts. Um, You think of creation, we see that God speaks all things into being by his word, and then it's brought to life and form by the Spirit. And then in the rest of the Old Testament, in recreation, you might call it, um, we see God reveal himself objectively by his word, and then oftentimes this includes the angel of the Lord as well. And then we see the Spirit of God gives gifts and powers. You think of the strength of Samson or the artistry of those who built the tabernacle, um, the promise of the new heart of Ezekiel, Ezekiel and uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Um, and then uh, citing another one of our great uh, Reformed theologians, Herman Bobbing, he points out that sometimes in the, in the Old Testament, this threefold uh, uh, action is found in the same passage. And Isaiah 61.1, which again, that's what Jesus' text in Isaiah is referring back to, is one of those passages in the Old Testament where you see this threefold action different, differentiated of the three all in a single passage. Um, so you see this differentiation of three all set on one unified purpose. Think of the words that Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me. So, uh, yes, dimly lit, but we see the Spirit who's separate from the one who's anointed and sent and the Spirit and the anointed one separate from the one who sends. So in the New Testament, these lights in this really richly furnished room get turned on. Um, in Luke's gospel, where you know, we're reading in chapter 4, pretty early on in the gospel, pretty amazing that before this point, where he's citing this, what I would call an Old Testament Trinitarian passage, there's already been two other monumental Trinitarian uh, kind of events just in, in the Gospel of Luke. Think back to the announcement to Mary that the Spirit of God would come upon her so that she would bear the Son of God, who would be Emmanuel. Um, we've also seen the baptism of Jesus, where the voice of the Father comes from heaven, recognizing his Son, and the Spirit's descending upon him. That was just uh, up a, a chapter in 3.22. And here now, in chapter 4, as Jesus is announcing his ministry of the kingdom, he calls upon one of the capstone texts in the Old Testament that introduced this threefold work of God. Again, it's the data of Scripture that, that drives us to these Trinitarian doctrines. And it was the revelation of the Son and the Spirit in the first century that was the basis for these New Testament scriptures. Um, Let's look just really briefly at some of those key passages from the New Testament. Why is it that as we have worked through the New Testament as a church, uh, going back to church history, the Trinitarian doctrine is what we have come to? I just wanted to do a brief sampling of those things. Um, First, the oneness of God is very well established from the, the Old Testament. You think of 
uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, known as the Shema. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this was reaffirmed in the New Testament. The New Testament, again, is perfectly in line with that and consistent with that. Um, for example, in 1 Corinthians um, 8.6, you see this, but it's modified in a way to bring in the Son. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's really a fascinating, astounding building on the Old Testament um, teaching that God is one. Uh, we see identification of the Son and the Spirit with the one God. Uh, think of John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says that the temple, we are the temple of God because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Additionally, um, it's fascinating. You can do a whole survey of this. I'm just going to cite a couple. But the words and works of God from the Old Testament are often applied directly to either Jesus or to the Spirit in the New Testament. A couple examples here. Isaiah 45, 23 says that every knee shall bow to God and confess him. And then Philippians 2, 10, we see this promise of knees bowing and tongues confessing is applied to Christ. Similarly, in Isaiah 6, 9, the Lord sends the prophet to declare, keep on hearing, but do not understand. And in Acts 28, 26, this prophecy is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. So, Finally, we also see distinction. It'd be one thing to just say, well, there's all these, um, you know, now we see there's Father, Son, and Spirit, but there's one God, and they're all the just different manifestations of the same God, right? That, that would be a heresy, by the way. Um, but uh, we, why is that a heresy? Because we see there's distinction in these uh, members of the Trinity. Jesus, the Son, regularly prays to the Father, right? That, that doesn't really make sense in the, if each of the persons is a manifestation, just a different manifestation at a different, at a different time. Um, uh, this assumes a distinction, of course. And then we also see in John 15, 26, pretty astounding passage in this regard. Uh, Jesus says that he will send the Spirit uh, from the Father. Um, so with regard to some of the key biblical points related to the Trinity, we see that God is one. There's one God. Father, Son, and Spirit are identified with God, and Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct. Um, Now, going through all that, it might seem a little dry. I hope it's not. It's pretty fascinating stuff, but um, I know it's early on a Sunday, and it's beautiful outside and everything. But this isn't just something for pointy-nosed theologians to get around and give them something to talk about while they you know, have their high-octane beers or whatever it is. Um, This is foundational to to Christianity and to who God is. Um, And it's also important important for understanding how God works, particularly how he works in salvation. And that's we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next point in a second. Um, I, uh, you know, have to refer to John Calvin. He's got a good quote on this. He's talking about this differentiation in how the Father, Son, and Spirit work. He says, To the Father is attributed the beginning of action, the fountain and source of all things. 
to the sun, wisdom, counsel, and arrangement in action, while the energy and efficacy of action is assigned to the spirit. And we see that. And I think in this passage here, back to our passage in Luke 4, again, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and he has sent me. We see there the father as fountainhead has sent the spirit and the son. The son is the one acting who proclaims and restores sight and sets free. And the spirit descends upon the activity to bring it to completion and give it success. Um, You know, this made me think, you know, there's a lot of talk about conspiracy theories in our day and, you know, we could talk about those endlessly, I'm sure. Um, but I, I thought of this as a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Not so much a theory, though. A, a scriptural conspiracy that from ages past, the Trinitarian God took it on himself to work towards the salvation of humanity in a glorious way. So that's a, you might call that a, a glorious conspiracy. Um, a Herman Bavink says this, In the doctrine of the Trinity, we feel the heartbeat of God's entire revelation for redemption of humanity. Though foreshadowed in the Old Testament, it only comes to light fully in Christ. Religion can be satisfied with nothing less than God himself. And really, that last statement, religion can be satisfied with nothing less than God himself, that's where we turn to next, talking more about what was Isaiah referring to. Um, and, of course, Jesus through Isaiah. So, just summarizing first two points. Nature of revelation, astoundingly high and glorious. Trinitarian God called here of what is this plan. Now let's talk a little bit more about the plan that this Trinitarian God is working. Um, So, from this passage, um, you know, looking to what's bound up in the Isaiah text that Jesus refers to, um, I wanted to note a couple things. First, this is the announcement, and fundamentally, I'd say, this is the announcement of the kingdom of God. Um, though the word, if you reread it quickly, or if you notice, the kingdom word is not used here, um, but he follows, Luke here, follows the exact same pattern as the other synoptic, synoptic gospels. So, you know, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke gospels, which often um, share similar patterns. Um, you see in Matthew and Mark um, the uh, baptism of Jesus at the beginning. Then Jesus going to the wilderness, being tempted by the uh, devil. And then he comes back to Galilee and he then begins proclaiming the kingdom. So that's essentially what you've seen in Mark too, without the words kingdom. But um, uh, he, uh, I want to say, if you look down at verse 43 as well in the same chapter, you'll see that Jesus believes that what he's doing here is um, announcing and proclaiming the kingdom of God as well. So this is about a, king, a kingdom. Now, um, that reminds us that this Isaiah passage, you know, since Jesus can call into this Isaiah passage, not even mention the word uh, kingdom, there's a richness here. It's not just a random passage of positive sentiment that Jesus is bringing up, you know, that God through Jesus is going to heal some people and do some fascinating works. Um, You know, that's not the message we're supposed to get. It's much more deep and meaningful than that. Um, There's this rich background of a kingdom in the Old Testament. Of course, the most obvious one is what? 
What would you say? Kingdom in the Old Testament, that's David. Think of the, the Davidic kingdom in Israel. Um, though you begin to see pretty early on, as you read on you know, through David and the sons after him, the kind of shadowy nature of that. Was David really going to be able to bear the burden of the hopes that were placed upon him in this kingdom? Um, no, the, the Davidic line of kings so far um, uh, did not and could not produce holiness, justice, restoration, and ultimately salvation. Um, and these were always meant by God on a global scale. At this point, the Davidic kingdom was nothing but a stump compared to the huge sequoia tree picture of the kingdom of God that was, that was promised by God. Um, in Isaiah 40 to 55 and Isaiah 61, this glorious kingdom is promised. Um, only God himself would be the one who would accomplish this, this salvation and this kingdom in light of Israel's failures. We see, Isaiah, we see in Isaiah that God has promised to bring about his eschatological salvation. So again, Jesus reading Isaiah, which is Isaiah 61 primarily, and Isaiah 61 is really an interpretation of Isaiah 40 to 55. So there's all kinds of rich Old Testament passages working on each other here. Um, but really, that whole section of Isaiah is getting at God saying, you know, you have failed, and I'm going to do this by my strong arm. And so that's ultimately what Jesus is referring to. Um, because Isaiah 40 to 55 is in the background, factoring in so much and so rich, I wanted to, bear with me a little bit here, I wanted to read through just some snippets of those 15 chapters. I'm not going to read all 15 chapters, but um, 10 or 12 snippets. And yeah, they're here on the screen. Some of these have a little bit of my paraphrasing for, to make them uh, parallel with the way I'm talking. But um, you see here at the beginning of chapter 40, um, in this section of Isaiah, that God will comfort his people because their warfare is over. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed to all flesh as he lifts up every valley and makes low every mountain. He comes with might to tend his flock as a shepherd. The Lord is the one who redeemed Israel. Again, that God, by his strong arm, bringing this salvation about. He even puts a pool of life-giving water in the desert where there is, there is no life, right? In chapter 41. Chapter 42, the Lord's servant, here we see the servant called upon, will not rest until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Mike read that in the call to worship this morning. The Lord is the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, your Savior, the Lord. The Lord has blotted out Israel's transgressions like a cloud. In chapter 45, all the ends of the earth shall turn to God and be saved. To him every knee shall bow and tongue swear allegiance. It is too light a thing for the Lord to bring back the preserved of Israel only. He will make his servant a light for the Gentiles as well. And hopefully you're starting to see when you think of the work of Jesus, you think of these things, how, how are these things actually coming to be? It is only through um, this servant, only through the Son in this Trinitarian scheme. Um, chapter 49, the Lord will rescue captives and contend with those who contend with them. 
God's people shall no more drink the bowl of his wrath. He will put that bowl in the hand of their tormentors. And then the Lord gives this beautiful command in Isaiah 52. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. For the Lord has comforted his people and redeemed Jerusalem. And then the famous suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53 God's servant was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. God's people shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before them shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And this is just a small sampling of that section, that 15 chapter section in Isaiah, that Isaiah 61 is referring to, that Jesus is referring to. And Luke 4. Um, and I was, I was thinking of these last night, actually. My younger, my six-year-old Calvin over there, who's diligently paying attention, um, he woke up crying in the middle of the night, which doesn't happen too often. I went over there to comfort him, comfort him a bit and um, couldn't go back to sleep. So I just was doing some praying. And I was thinking... Um, Maybe just because I've known some people recently that went through some hard times and loss of close uh, family members. Just thinking of all those comforts that we have that we're so thankful of and, you know, thanking God for our family and our, um, you know, our, our livelihood, our jobs, all the material blessings we have and all the, the, the love that we have in our community and all these things. But really... This is a little bit sad, but, uh, you know, understanding that all those things fade away. There's not one of those things that will not fade away in time. And what won't fade away? It's promises from God. You know, <laughs> what is more valuable? Like, we, we ought to be, every day, these are the engine that gets us going. It doesn't mean that our family and our friends and the love we have is meaningless. It's very meaningful, but this is what gives it meaning. This is what gives it a future as well. And so when Jesus is, is calling back to a bunch of promises and saying, this is fulfilled, um, that ought to just fill our hearts with joy um, for all of, of God's people. And all those who, who aren't God's people should call them into that because there is no hope outside of these promises. So Jesus points to the realization of all these promises from Isaiah. And he says, today, this is fulfilled. Again, um, it's fulfilled because Jesus has come and he started his ministry, right? There's still that suffering servant passage, which even is in the past tense, right? Was still future to Isaiah and was still future to, to Jesus at the time of these words. But the fulfillment is happening. Um, one other background part of this Isaiah 61 I wanted to bring up is Jubilee. Um, in Isaiah 61, 1, and Jesus referring to this, um, he talks about proclaiming liberty. Um, in doing that, he's tying back to the Old Testament um, year of Jubilee. And it's a fascinating concept in Leviticus 25 um, that beyond the every seven-day Sabbaths, every week that would happen, um, the Mosaic Law also called for a every seventh year Sabbath year. Um, and in this year, the fields were not to be worked and the land was supposed to have a Sabbath rest. Um, but beyond that, 
after uh, seven of these cycles of seven years, uh, there was to be a special Sabbath year called Jubilee. And in this year, as the standard Sabbath year, the land was to see a Sabbath rest, and the land was to be returned to its original owners based on the Lord's inheritance. So those who were slaves and and dislocated because of debt uh, were to have rest and a home. Um, And so here you have the concept of Sabbath really to the nth degree, the weekly Sabbath, the yearly Sabbath, the seven of those yearly Sabbaths. Um, And we know from the New Testament that Sabbath and Sabbath rest and inheritance uh, are tightly linked. The author of the Hebrews in a famous passage recalls the Lord swearing that those who rebelled would not enter his rest. And, And he was referring to them entering the promised land. Yet Hebrews 4 8 to 9 points to a rest and an inheritance more ultimate than anything that Joshua ever gave to the people. Um, All of God's faithful people await a further inheritance. So this is referring to our promise of resurrection, of a new heaven and a new earth, um, where there's this restored, um, sinless communion with God himself. Um, But also beyond this Sabbath and inheritance concept in Jubilee, there was also a strong theme, and I think this is most on the nose of what Jesus is bringing up here, this uh, idea of freedom from captivity. The year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement in the 50th year. A trumpet was to be sounded and liberty proclaimed to all inhabitants. And I think it's fascinating to note here the tie between atonement on the day of atonement and liberty. Any Israelite who was a slave because of debt was to be set free. Now, we know this idea of freedom for captives in the Old Testament is also a kind of shadow of a more ultimate release, um, one which every one of us in this room desperately need as well. Um, In John 8, 34, Jesus said, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And I know we all feel that in our lives, even as redeemed believers. Um, Further, Hebrews 2.15 describes all men as through fear of death subject to lifelong slavery. We can feel that too, with the threat of of death coming. Um, But it's this ultimate context that jubilee and liberty for captives finds its true meaning. Isaiah takes these concepts of Sabbath, inheritance, and liberty, and jubilee, and applies them more broadly to the Lord's salvation um, that we saw summarized in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 above. That was Isaiah, centuries before Christ. Now Jesus publicly reads those ancient words, and he applies them to his own work as he embarks upon his ministry. Jesus announces to all that his ministry will be one concerning the establishment of God's kingdom, of God's mighty salvation, a ministry that heals physical and spiritual blindness, a ministry which gives rest to weary souls, a ministry that judges the proud and the haughty and lifts up those who are humble before God, a ministry that calls all of God's people, Jews and Gentile, to himself, a ministry that proclaims liberty to those who are physical captives and those captive to sin and death. So, the response. The last thing I wanted 
to focus on really briefly is the response of the people and our response. Um, let's see. Getting confused in my notes. Here we go. Yeah, so looking a little bit below our passage in verses 22 to 30, um, I wanted to get into the response of the people. I didn't read that before, but if you want to scan through it now or if you're familiar with that, it's pretty fascinating. Um, First, in the part we read, uh, there's a recognition from the people of these amazingly gracious words that Jesus is speaking. It doesn't even make sense to them how this common man with whom they're all quite familiar um, could be speaking in this way. And no doubt a huge part of that is this anointing of the Spirit that's upon uh, Christ, this special anointing as he's going into his ministry. But Jesus seems to sense something in their, their being perplexed that demonstrates a lack of faithfulness. Um, and he doesn't exactly uh, pull them in. He has a little bit of a bristly response. He, he uses it as an opportunity to remind them of the way that God passed over Israel during times of great need in the Old Testament and instead brought salvation to Gentiles. And their response is pretty amazing. Where there was awe and wonder at his gracious words just a second ago, now there's nothing but wrath. And so those who were sitting calmly in the synagogue listening to Jesus' words are in short order rushing in a mob kind of fashion to throw him off a a cliff and um, Jesus showing that no one has power uh, over him just kind of walks right through. Um, Seems to be certainly some kind of miraculous way in which he just disengages from the the situation. It wasn't his time. Um, But is this the response that you would expect? You know, initially you might think that um, they would all rush him and raise him on their shoulders and say, here's, you know, the Lord's anointed, Um, you know, like a Hosanna kind of thing. Um, You know, you would think that, but we know that's that's not the way of the world. Um, And that comes down to our day as as well. Um, All men every day are faced uh, with a call from God. We all see God's mighty works in creation and providence. We're constantly bombarded with these gracious truths around us. Um, And beyond that, many are struck by the outward call of the gospel. God's truth and man's condemnation and the hope of salvation, this message goes forth. And it's often met with opposition and threats of condemnation and violence. Um, And, you know, one thing to take away from that, which is even a scriptural teaching, that if they did that to our Lord, don't expect anything different. For us, I think that's one thing. But uh, God, there, there's always a choice to be made, and, and God is certainly calling his elect. Um, so in closing, what better way to think about this response to Jesus' words? Jesus claims the words of Isaiah as applying to himself. This promised salvation from God himself was fulfilled in his ministry, he said. Today, this message confronts us um, as it did in that little synagogue in Nazareth, you know, thousands of years ago. Humanly speaking, there's much to scoff at still. Are these the words of Isaiah, like the critical scholars question? 
or, or even, you know, what bearing do those words have to, uh, on us here in 2022? Um, those guys didn't even have iPhones. Um, is, isn't this just the carpenter's son? Um, you know, we can have that kind of response too. But such faithless kind of response is, is not neutral. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. We are called to better things than this. So with eyes of faith, we see the amazing glory of God's word, like we talked about at the beginning, the indescribable majesty, uh, majesty of his Trinitarian salvific plan, um, the beauty of his kingdom and the Old Testament foreshadowing of his strong arm of salvation of those in captivity and the promise of an inheritance that we wait for with great joy. May we all be changed by the words of Christ even today. Um, If any are outside of Christ, as I mentioned before, flee to him. He's the only hope where all these promises, the only thing that won't fade away, uh, is found. He's your only hope of salvation. And for all those who are in uh, the household of faith, be encouraged by God's mighty salvation on your behalf. God is doing your salvation. God has worked it and he will complete it. Be um, uh, comforted and strengthened by these promises. Hope in them and serve him with joy. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for these truths we see in your word. We ask that none of these words would return to you empty, but that even today you would use them in your mighty acts. Send your spirit to us as we continue to meditate on your mighty deeds and on our response to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.